Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. If you were listening carefully yesterday, you would have heard two sounds. The first sound that you would have heard at about 1 p.m. Eastern time was a great sigh, a sigh of relief across the nation as everybody who has suffered through the darkness of winter, we don't get much of that in Florida, but around the country, the sign that spring and summer are coming could be heard around the country. The snap of a leather ball hitting a leather glove. (laughs) Baseball is back. Now you all know that as much as I am a rabid baseball fan, I try dearly not to use too many sports analogies in my preaching. But, But if you will indulge me, something happened yesterday that was just too perfect. Because yesterday was the first day that baseball began to play under a new set of rules. And these new set of rules that baseball is being played under, there's one that is fairly significant that even a casual fan would notice. And that is that there is now a pitch clock. Pitchers have a certain amount of time to pitch the ball back to the batter. And the batter has a certain amount of time to be ready to take that pitch. It's kind of like a play clock in football or a shot clock in basketball. It's meant to speed up the game. And if you are a pitcher who does not throw on time, the batter gets a free ball. If you're a hitter who is not ready in time, the pitcher gets a free strike. And so wouldn't you believe the first full day of spring training where all 30 teams are playing, the Atlanta Braves are playing the Boston Red Sox, bottom of the ninth, tie game, bases loaded, 3-2 count, a batter named... Cal Conley stepped into the box, but did not have his face looking at the pitcher. And so the umpire said that he was not ready on time. That's a strike. He's out. The game is over. The game ended because he wasn't looking in the right direction. He was not ready for it. He missed an important detail. But But what's interesting about this story is that Cal Connolly is not a longtime Major League veteran. He's not somebody who has not ever played with these rules before. He has been playing in the minor leagues for the past three years. Leagues that have been using the pitch timer. He should have known better. The league has forced people to watch Zooms about how they're going to enforce this rule. And and there's been tons of ink uh, spread in newspapers on the internet about these new rules. Every baseball fan knows about them. Certainly every player knows about them. And the people that should know best are the minor leaguers who have already been playing under these rules. And while it's so odd for a game to end on such a piece of minutiae, that he wasn't looking in the right direction at the right time, Cal Conley should have known better. Which is true in our lives too, isn't it? How many times do we do something where we should have known better? 
Whether we are a Christian or not, we often make unforced errors in our lives, things that we should know better than. Whether we forget, I do that a lot. Whether we choose to be willfully ignorant, my children know about that one. Or we plow on with a decision knowing that it's wrong. I won't give any examples of who does that. But there are often times ways that we know better than to do something and do it anyway. We can have motivations for this from all sorts of places, but at the end of the day, something about being human means that we do things that we know are wrong or harmful. Whether we do it obstinately or ignorantly, we still do them. And this is what was happening at the church at Galatia. As we have been walking through the book of Galatians, we begin to see a picture of what they have been doing, what they have been taught that they should have known better than. The church at Galatia should have known better than to follow after these false teachers. They had heard the gospel clearly preached by Paul. They had experienced the life-changing power of the gospel, but for some reason, they decided to set that aside and follow a false hope, follow an empty gospel. Now, it's easy for us to sit in our nice, comfortable theater chairs and open our Bibles to Galatians and shake our heads and go, oh, foolish Galatians, I'm so glad I'm not like them. But as we open the book of Galatians this morning, what I want to, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider that are there any ways that we find ourselves doing the same thing as the church at Galatia? Because based on my own life, my experience in talking with so many of you and from reading the other stories in the scripture, what I think is true of us is that we are all susceptible to this same flaw. So if you are able, I invite you to stand as I read from God's word. I'm going to read Galatians 4, 1 through 20. I mean that the air as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? 
For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that they may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed by you. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So Paul continues on with his discussion from chapter 3 by giving us an illustration, an illustration of what it is he has been tying together. Paul has shown us the fruitlessness of relying on the law to secure or improve our acceptance by God. And so he returns to the metaphor that he has been toying around with through chapter 3, the metaphor of adoption, but he lays out the dilemma of a trust fund kid. In Roman law, you could not take hold of your inheritance until you reached a certain age, whether that was an age set by the state or whether that was the age set by your family. In one way or the other, you couldn't get the money of your inheritance until you reached that certain age. It's very much the same way that wealthy parents who decide to give their children a lot of money and place it in a trust, the children can't get that money until the date set by the trust. And Roman children couldn't either. And that's what Paul is using as an illustration here. Until that day comes, that child might as well be a household servant. You can't spend the money you don't have. You can't take the positions you have and are owed to you until the date that is set by that trust. Paul says, before Christ has dawned in our lives, before we came to know him or be known by him, this is what we were like. We were chained to the rules. We were enslaved to what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. Now, it's worth taking a second to unpack that phrase because it's going to become significant throughout this passage. When Paul talks about the elementary principles of this world, what he's referencing is the way that every religion in the world, except for Christianity, works. He's giving us a picture of how every different religion works. Every religion has a sort of tit-for-tat system of pleasing God or gods. Offer a sacrifice to the God of harvest, get a good harvest. Offer good deeds to the God of war, and you'll probably survive the battle. Obey the laws of Yahweh, and he will bless you. Whether you're a Greek who believed in Zeus, a Roman worshiper who worshiped Jupiter, or an Israelite who misunderstood the covenant of Yahweh, every system of religion enslaves us to follow a very certain and particular moral code. And Paul says that when we lived like that, and when we live like that, we are like a child waiting for his inheritance, chained to that old system of rules. Now, what you would expect at this point, what your mind is probably thinking of is, okay, how old before I can get the good stuff? How old do I have to be for that trust to vest for me? But Paul does something different. Paul subverts our understanding. We think he's going to say, and now you have come of age. 
that's not what Paul says. What does Paul say? Look back at the text. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. The arrival is not of our birthday, is not of the day where we get old enough to receive this. It's when God sends his son. He subverts the expectation that we have that our inheritance will come from some sort of action or effort on our part. Paul switches that up. No, your inheritance comes from the actions of another. Jesus was born under a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us and give us adoption into God's family. It is entirely a gift. This is a, this is a huge shot that Paul is taking at the false teachers in Galatia. There is nothing that you can do to earn the blessing or adoption of God. Both our redemption and our adoption are because of the work of Jesus. No rule-keeping required. No law-keeping needed. It's a gift of grace. And Paul goes on to show us how incredible this really is. Because of our adoption, we have received the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment, the guarantee of our faith in Christ. The Son affects our adoption and the Spirit applies it to our heart. That's why he says we can cry, Abba, Father. That's why he repeats this passage, uh, the same ideas in Romans, which I read for our assurance of pardon. Because the Holy Spirit has worked in our lives, we know that God is not a cold and distant parent, but a loving and generous Father. And so we're not enslaved to those elementary principles any longer. If our acceptance is based on grace, if our continued life in Christ is based on grace, then all of the things we do can't change that because we didn't affect it to happen in the first place. If a lawyer came to you this morning and said, oh, by the way, your distant uncle whose name you can't even remember has left you millions of dollars and given it to you, how foolish would you be if you said, ah, yes, but I need to do, I need to clean myself up before I go and get this money. I need to make sure that I've held my job, my, my position at my job for five years before I'll take that money. That would be foolish. That would be nonsense. In the same way, anytime we try to add our works to the great gift of what Jesus has given us, it is nonsense. We don't have to measure ourselves according to our achievement. We aren't enslaved to that anymore. We are sons and not just sons, but heirs. Because of Jesus' timing, no matter how old we are, we have received the blessing of adoption. Because of Jesus' timing, no matter how long we have been a Christian, we have received the same blessing of adoption from God. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul culminates this idea that he's been going through all of chapter 3 and that he begins chapter 4 with, but, but Paul can't help himself. Paul's a pastor at heart, and so he has to stop in the middle of this story. He's going to pick it back up. We'll pick it up next week with the story of Sarah and Hagar. But before he gets there, he's got, he's got two things, how he wants to apply this to the Galatian church's life, and I think how it applies to our life. For all this talk of the law and adoption and Jesus, what does it matter? Well, the first thing that he shows them is that it's possible for you and I, it's possible for the Galatian and church to fall back into enslavement to the elementary principles of the world, to idolatry. Even as Christians, 
He reminds them that, that before they became Christians, before Paul showed up in Galatia, most of them were pagans. Most of them worshiped uh, Greek gods or Roman gods or family idols. But he says, now you've been rescued. Now you've seen the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel. And if you've glimpsed that beauty, how can you go back? How can you return to that old, worthless, and weak system of achievement and earning? Why would you willingly choose to re-enter slavery? But Paul is, is drawing here on the story of the Exodus from the Old Testament. If you were with us this past fall, you may remember this thing that kept happening as we walked through the book of Exodus. Every time something that was slightly inconvenient would happen to the people of Israel, what would the people of Israel say? Woe is me. Moses, why have you done? Moses, did you bring us out of Egypt because there weren't enough graves there? Moses, why have you brought us out into the desert? Moses, I'm tired of eating manna. Moses, don't you remember when we were in Egypt? We had fish and we had garlic. Moses, why can't we go back to the place where there is garlic? And all of us kind of laugh. All of us kind of chuckle at this story because what do we all remember that the Israelites are conveniently forgetting about their life in Egypt? That they were enslaved. Yes, you had garlic because your slave masters decided to be mildly kind. You were still enslaved. Why would you want to go back there even if, even if it meant you had the last garlic clove you've ever eaten. No, you were mercilessly enslaved. Come on, Israelites, that's foolish. But the Galatians are doing the exact same thing. They're saying, oh, wasn't life good when I had to live by simply a moral code? The false teachers have hoodwinked them so much that they think that being a real Christian means that they're going to follow all of the Old Testament law. And so they're trying to please God by keeping the Old Testament calendar. That's why Paul says they're observing uh, days and months and years. They're taking all of the Old Testament's feast days and new moon festivals and annual rites and saying, this is what's going to make God really like me. This is what's going to make him really happy with me. And so what Paul says in this passage is actually really striking. Paul says that trying to please God, even with good things from the Old Testament law, is no different than straight paganism. It's no different. The same thing Paul uses to describe their lives before they came to know Jesus is what Paul uses to describe themselves trying to please God through law-keeping. That is the elementary principles of the world. Anything we do that doesn't make us trust and rely on God more is simply paganism. Even when we try to dress it up with good Christian words, all we are doing is baptizing our paganism with the word Christian. Take a second and let that sink in. Let me, let me, let's think through that for a second. The way that we think God will bless us because we attend church, maybe even more than others, is functional paganism. Anytime we think that our prayers are going to be answered more by what we think we should get 
And we think that if we just obey God a little bit better, God will do that for us. That is functional paganism. Anytime we turn a good and healthy moral endeavor into a way to make God love us more, we're living in functional paganism, even if we tie Jesus' name in a banner over top of us. What I'm saying here is that any of our Christian disciplines, any of our acts of kindness and mercy, any of the sermons we preach can be manifestations of our idolatry if we're doing them to get God's attention instead of as an overflow of what God has already done in our life. We are already adopted. That is finished. The paperwork is sealed. We have already been given our inheritance. It is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus. We have already received the guarantee of that inheritance through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We cannot add anything to the work of Jesus that has already been done. And anytime we try to do that, it's idolatry and false religion. That's what was so glaring about the Galatian church. That's why Paul was worried that his ministry to them had been for nothing. Were they like the seed that burst forth in the shallow soil and it has no root? And so when the summer sun beats down on it, it withers. Is that what the church at Galatia was like? Is that what I'm like? Paul is asking us to check our hearts to see what God is doing in our lives. But he wants to make one more point of application. He wants to say one more thing. He shows us the absolute reliance on the work of Jesus and belief in the gospel changes the way that we love and serve others. And Paul does this by by reminding of the Galatians of their past, reminding the Galatians of how they had come together. When Paul came to Galatia, he says that it was because of some sort of physical ailment. Now, we're not exactly sure what that is. Acts doesn't tell us these details, and we just get sort of hints and and allusions even here in the book of Galatians. But Paul has some sort of problem that leads him to divert his path to Galatia. And as he gets there, whatever is going on with Paul, whatever physical ailment Paul has makes him very hard to listen to. Some people have suggested that it was perhaps some sort of eye problem, um, and there's a couple of sort of allusions in the New Testament that, that may point in that direction, but at the end of the day, we just don't know. Whatever it was that Paul had, Paul said, it was hard for you to listen to me because of the sickness that I had going on physically, and nevertheless, you received me anyway. And they didn't just receive him, but they trusted him as a messenger of God. The relationship began as one where Paul told them the good news and they responded with goodness, kindness, and generosity. Paul says that they were joyful to hear his message, so joyful that they would have gouged out their eyes. This is one of the reasons why people think that Paul might have had an eye problem. But just like in our day, there was a phrase back in those days like, I'd give my right eye. Right? You know, like somebody might say, I'd give my right eye to see a band in concert. I'd give my right eye to finally get Taylor Swift tickets or whoever your favorite artist is. That phrase existed in ancient Greece in the same way. What we see is Paul sort of has this experience with the Galatians that love and kindness flowed between them in both directions, that they loved and appreciated what he was doing in preaching the gospel to them, that that they loved and appreciated him. But something changed. 
Once the false teachers came in, once the false teachers came in after Paul had left, something turned because Paul asks them, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The false teachers have so infected the minds of the Galatian church that they actually start thinking that Paul is the bad guy that Paul is the, the one who is causing trouble. The false teachers have really done a number on the church at Galatia. And Paul pulls back the curtain and shows them what these false teachers are doing. The false teachers have flattered you and puffed you up, church at Galatia. They have made a big deal out of the Galatians, so the Galatians would make a big deal out of them. But Paul says, this isn't based on the truth. This isn't based on the gospel. It's for no good purpose. What's happening here, to use language that we're sort of more familiar with in our day and age, is that the false teachers are creating a codependent relationship with the Galatians so that the false teachers might be exalted. They want the Galatians to become dependent on them. And in many ways, this is, this is an incredible red flag. I know many of your stories, and I know that church hurt is a part of many of your lives. Anytime someone wants to create dependence on them and not reliance on the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus, beware, be cautious, because that's what the false teachers in Galatia were doing. That's what false teachers still do. But Paul wants something else. Paul is in anguish. He is in the, the, the pangs of childbirth. Why? To see Christ formed in the church at Galatia. Not that they would love Paul, not that they would be on team Paul and not team false teacher, but rather that they would see the goodness of Jesus through the gospel. That the free grace and full inheritance that has been freely given to them would take root in their hearts. And he is perplexed that they would walk away from this gift and instead return and embrace some sort of cheap knockoff rules-based idolatry. They should know better. Beloved, I entreat you, be like Paul. Paul knew that any law-keeping and rule-following was null and void because of how great, powerful, and beautiful the work of Jesus was. He, wasn't, he knew that it wasn't just about doing the right things. He knew that following Jesus was a different path forward than that, one of dependence on Jesus one of reliance on the Holy Spirit, one where our inheritance is received and not earned, one where it is a gift and not a wage. So let us lay aside our false notions that our behavior merits us anything in the eyes of God. And let's trust wholly in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Let's live like people who by no action of our own have been rescued from our sin and are being delivered from this present evil age. Let's pray.